Mighty Lord and Everlasting One, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you are the God who is in heaven, who looks down upon us and who delivers to us your word that we might understand who you are. We ask, O Lord, that your grace and mercy would flow out to us through your word this morning. Help us to see the need that we have of Christ and help us to see your judgment and your wrath clearly in view of sin. We so ask that you would bless this text to our mind, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 9 to the end of chapter 7. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive in the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month, on that day all the foundations of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. 
and the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shot him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed in the earth 150 days. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us as we study. We find that the account is one of swift and terrible judgment on sinful rebellion. That is what this passage is teaching. The narrative begins by contrasting Noah with his generation, the way of the righteous with the way of open rebellion against God. It continues by describing how God judged the wicked and started a new people with the righteous, which is what God is doing. It concludes with the sacrifice of a worshiping community that escaped the great judgment. In it all, Noah became the means of saving the race. Now, we are only looking at the first half of this narrative. Then next week, we'll look at 8, 1 to 22. Here, we find the chosen people. God instructs the righteous to prepare to escape the judgment that is coming to the wicked. Noah, though, as we see in verse 9, it says that he walked with God. This section is contrasting who Noah is with the corrupt generation. Noah and his family were touched by God's grace to be delivered. Noah found grace. And here, Noah was living a life of faith before God. And remember, what does it mean to walk with God, as we talked about? Living a life of faith guarding against the spots of the world, meticulously managing every sphere of life. It means forsaking everything and walking alongside of God. And that's what Noah was doing. And to hold the proper theology of walking is to hold a continually reforming outlook on walking in sanctification with God. That's what Noah did. He was, as the text says, righteous, blameless, in contrast to corrupt and violent. These are contrasts. Noah is described as a just and blameless man, a holy, righteous man. And even taking that holy, righteous as an adverb, making it something that he did, too. He was blameless 
and wholly righteous, something that he was doing. Blameless describes a perfect, flawless, or complete individual. In Leviticus, it's used to describe sacrificial animals as perfect and without blemish. The term is also used of Abraham in Genesis 17 and verse 1, where God tells him to be blameless. Noah, as one righteous, describes a covenantal relationship and proper conduct that Noah had inside the covenant. That's why he was righteous. Noah was conforming to the requirements of the relationship he had with God. That made him different than those who were rebelling against God. In contrast to Noah, the earth was corrupt. Genesis 6.12 So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Over and over and over again, God will never allow anyone to forget man's wickedness. Corruption was a result of the fall. The corruption of the earth here is given in two stages. Verse 11 states that the earth was corrupt and full of violence, and then verse 12 records that God saw the violence, recalling the wording of Genesis 1, that it was, remember, he saw that it was good? Well, here, he saw that it was corrupt. His creation in the beginning before the fall was good. After the, after the fall, everything was filled with violence and God saw that it was corrupt. It's also added that all flesh had corrupted itself. Three times in two verses the term corrupt is used. This word as well as violence gives a graphic description of human nature. Corrupt, wicked. It's human nature at its worst. And wicked behavior that God saw filled the earth with only the exception of Noah. However, in the way that God has so instructed Noah, when the destruction is over, the idea is, is that only Noah and his family will be left, and the wicked, the corrupt, the earth filled with violence, will be gone. And so God tells Noah to prepare an ark. Verses 14 to 21, chapter 7. The rest of the chapter records the instructions for building and filling the ark, and then the refrain is set of Noah's obedience over and over and over again. And we'll look at that in a moment. The ark was 300 cubits long and 50 wide and 30 high. Now that is enough room, just to give you an idea, to hold 52 large train boxcars worth. Now, for what Noah needed, in terms of what was on the earth at the time, the individual species that were uncorrupt, unmixed, we hadn't gone through hundreds of years of uh, different kinds of birds being together or different kinds of dogs, bread, or things of that nature, enough room had 52 boxcars of room. That's how big the ark would have been. But he only needed about 30. Everything had to go into the ark, including the food that they needed for about 150 days. Now, as a note, nowhere does it say that all the animals were mature. How easy would it have been to deal with baby animals? In any case, two by two, they went into the ark. And he says, God says to Noah in verse 18, 
But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So not only the animals are being saved, but that the Lord is going to save Noah and his family. God is making a redemptive covenant here with Noah to begin with a clean slate. Think of it as if God is going to build a building, and you have to level the foundation first. This covenant with Noah, this work that he's doing with Noah, is that very thing. He's leveling the ground, ready to build the building, the covenant that he's going to make with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and then capped with the new covenant. For now, it's enough to know that Noah was in a special relationship with God, different than everyone else of every other family on the planet. We'll touch more on what it means to be in the Noahic covenant when we deal with chapter 8 next week. But for now, understand that because Noah walked with God in a special way, he was given special treatment. God gives Noah a directive then to bring himself and his family and all of the animals into the ark. Not simply just two of each. They went in two by two, male and female, but seven pairs of the clean and two of the unclean. He didn't just get two by two. He got these seven pairs because when he gets off the ark, he's going to have to start sacrificing. And if he were to sacrifice the only two that he had, then that particular species would die out. And so God prepares the sacrificial system that's going to be set in place for sacrifice to him by having the right animals, clean animals that are supposed to come and be sacrificed to him. Seven pairs of those, two of all the others. Then in verse 22 of chapter 6, it says, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Noah did according to all that God commanded him is most important because it's demonstrating he not only got the instructions, but he was obedient. Here is what it means to walk with God or to be righteous, to do what God says. No doubt Moses, in penning this and putting this together and writing this for the Israelites, wanted them to see that even amidst the perverse generation, the righteous live a holy manner. And that would obviously be instructor for the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Remember, there's always a purpose as to why Moses would write certain things for the benefit of the Israelites and even for our benefit. It is very important to see that amidst a perverse generation that the righteous, those who are walking with God, live a holy life. And so, Noah did everything that God told him. And he goes into the ark. Genesis 7, 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are covenant-keeping. You are righteous before me in this generation. So he and his family went in. The animals went in. And according to uh, verse 9 and 15, miraculously they came in by the power of God. I mean, you ever try to catch a chicken? Kind of tough. All the animals came into the ark. The birds. How how was he going to catch all the birds? All the birds came into the ark. The alligators and the... Lions and tigers and polar bears and whatever else that were on the earth 
God had instructed the animals, and so they came miraculously. Now, after they all had gone into the ark, as God had commanded Noah, Noah and his family went into the ark with all the food that they needed for the journey. And then, very importantly, Genesis 7:16, God shut them in. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God has commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. God's sovereignty seen in the passage. I mean, think about what is going to take place. The floods are going to come. And here you have an ark made of wood with pitch on it. Well, God is in complete control. And in preserving these people and in preserving these animals, God's sovereignty in shutting them in, in caring for them in this way, in taking care of the ark, we find his work being done. It's not enough that Noah builds the ark. God's hand must be in on it as well. And then we find catastrophic judgment by God. It is expedient that this generation of sinners should die so that all others might be warned of the coming wrath of God. But the development of the narrative really flows to signs that those who entered the ark were safely shut in by the Lord, but all those outside the ark died. And that's what the text presses now. Noah sails on this ark into a new age through the judgment of God because God shut him in. God's grace was attending them. But catastrophe isn't going to interrupt God's desire to bless the world. The catastrophe comes as a result of God's intention to bring good out of it. Genesis 7.21 talks about the judgment. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Everything. Everything that had the breath of the spirit of life died. God does not kill. He destroys them. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground. And... This word destroy means to blot out. God is the only one who is able to blot things out. The righteous are established by the promise of the covenant, and the wicked are blotted out from God's mercy and his grace. And the waters thus prevailed on the earth 150 days. And so that's the narrative. That's what we have in the text. Let's look at what we might pull out of this text, and there are a couple of things that I want to deal with. First, God and his relationship with sin. God hates sin. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Habakkuk 1, 12-13. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, and so he destroyed it. God not only hates sin, he doesn't set up a rehab center for these people so that he can help them. Instead, he destroys them because it's not only that he hates sin, but God hates sinners. We often hear the cliche, hate the sin and love the sinner. Well, the scriptures over and over again and in demonstrating election demonstrate that God not only hates the sin, but he hates the sinner as well. Malachi and Romans quoting the same, Jacob I loved, 
but Esau I hated. Not Esau's sin, but Esau himself. And if God hates Esau, and Romans demonstrates that he hates Pharaoh, and he hates those who do iniquity, as the psalmist say, not only their iniquity, he detests the vessels of wickedness. For if he didn't, he would have destroyed this batch of them. He would have never done it. He would have never destroyed this batch of wicked men, and instead he would have done something to help them out. But instead, because of his hatred for sin and the sinner who sins, he destroyed them all. Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, gives us a devotional definition of sin, one that should make us think and ponder what sin is. He's very descriptive. Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. Certainly, God must hate sin because of his holiness. Because he is holy, God hates anything contrary to his holiness, and thus so he judges sin. The flood is God's wrath against sinful man. Men died. And it was twice as bad, think about it, it was twice as bad for these people. They died a horrible death by the hand of God, and then they're judged in their sin by God, standing before him on their judgment, sent to a worse place, the place of eternal torment. The flood itself parallels the end times. The saved are separated from the wicked. Matthew 25 describes for us the account of the separation of the righteous who have received grace and the wicked who receive wrath. Jesus is teaching on that. Goats and sheep. The flood is a separation. Noah and his family were separated from the wicked and saved. And if God doesn't come in and destroy sin and destroy sinners who sin, then... God deals with sin through grace. Either God judges sin or he cleanses from sin. One or the other. No in between. Noah is the recipient of grace. He is found by God. And the ark is a demonstration of the body of Christ. When men and women take refuge in the ark, they're safe. When men and women take refuge in Christ, they cannot be anything but safe. And Christ covers them as the ark covered Noah from the waters. The second thing that we should think about, not only that God hates sin and sinners who sin, but that God is a God of what we're going to call eschatological judgment, end time kind of judgment. The narrative of the flood testifies to God's power and freedom over his creation. It demonstrates a God who judges sin in deadly anger. In light of God's anger and wrath in the flood, God's gracious redemption is meaningful. Because if you don't have a God who's holy, who's judging sin, then redemption doesn't mean much. And it's very clear that the historical narrative is really more interested in the morality of Noah than in contrasting just what wicked men did. All the narrative says is that Wicked men were wicked, but it says Noah did what God commanded him. And Noah was righteous and he was blameless. There's no mixture of good, no relenting, just violence and corruption for the wicked. One theologian said, basically, 
the chapter answers the question, what is the end of humanity? Can men and women pursue their lives immorally and enjoy the pleasures of this world with reckless abandon? Is this life final or preparatory? With the narrative, the answer is clear. Everything that had breath died. So, it's easy to see God acting justly in the world. It is always difficult to see the harshness of a holy God reacting to wickedness and sin. People don't like the idea that God is angry or he is uh, not just this big bundle of love. Note that in the passage overall, there's no wording concerning the terror of the lost. Even though there's lots of painters that have painted you know, this idea of what would have happened at the flood. But there's nothing about the terror of the lost. And there's no note of hesitancy in the remnant. They did what God told them to do. But we don't really hear any of the after effects, except that they were all dead. There's no part of the sinful world that remains. We don't even hear of the cries or echoes of their uh, fatalities expressed. Nothing. We could imagine... Maybe when it started raining, they ran over to the ark, thinking about how right Noah was in his preaching that they had scoffed to all of that time. What do you think Noah heard? People yelling from the outside, let us in. But God had shut them in. There was no getting in. The account of the judgment itself demonstrates a precursor to the reality of the eschatological judgment that ultimately will come on the whole planet, for the consummation of the ages. And Christ interpreted the passage in an analogy with final judgment, in which all the wicked will be swept away and only the righteous will enter into the age of the kingdom. Listen to what he says in Matthew 24. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So, in the same way that Christ comes, so people will be eating and drinking and doing their thing, not really paying attention, and thus, that's what will happen. And Jesus continues, and he explains the relationship of what, how, how the relationship should be for master and servant. And he says, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus notes the final eschatological judgment to come because the flood is simply a type of something worse. All of humanity were brutally destroyed in the flood, and there's no mention of their devastation except that they all died. Christ adds and explains the further judgment on which the flood is a type. The coming judgment of Christ's wrath on the wicked in hell. The flood, then, is a type of hell. In the same way, in Luke 17, Christ repeats his words about Noah, but he also adds in the destruction of Sodom, and then tells us to remember Lot's wife, who looked back, which we'll get to. These Old Testament precursors are nothing in respect to the coming judgment. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we find the explicit language of the wrath of Christ 
as in the eschatological judgment of the world in the end. It's vividly depicted by Jesus in his words, even worse than anything that we could imagine with the flood. For example, John writes, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of here, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And he's quoting, John is quoting 1 Samuel 6.20, where it says, And the men of Beth Shemash said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? That's eschatological judgment. That's the precursor to it. And Revelation describes the coming judgment. The flood is terrible, but the end and final judgment will be much worse. Remember, the narrative of Genesis 6 to 7 doesn't say what happened to them after they died. But, according to what Christ teaches us, we know what happened to them. Thirdly, the righteous walk with God because of grace. That's why they walk. That's why Noah did what he did. Noah was found or captured by God's grace. Genesis 6, 8. Noah wasn't looking, but God was looking. He saw that everything was good when he created the earth. He saw the corrupt and violent and wicked men, and he saw Noah. Romans 3 says there's no one who seeks after God. Noah wasn't seeking him. God was seeking Noah. Hebrews 11:7 says, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, godly fear that God gave him and placed in him, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So there's a commentary on the faith of Noah. By grace you are saved. Through faith, God saves. God gives grace. People cannot walk with God unless they have received grace. Grace is essential to the Christian walk. You cannot have a right walking with God unless you have grace. You cannot live the Christian life without grace. If people claim to be recipients of grace, they should be walking with God in righteousness. And that's why Jesus expounds the practical application of what God's holy character is all about in Matthew 5-7. to And then in 7 says, good trees do not produce bad fruit. Every time you want to think about what it means to walk rightly or what it means that God is holy, you just look at the commandments. That's why lawlessness is condemned. That's why Jesus says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Without God's attributedness is what he's saying. Without being like Godness is what he's saying. Not only was Noah captured by God's grace, but he was then shut in to the ark by God. 1 Peter 3, 20-22 Who were formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, 
while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype, which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So, even when people are baptized, think about baptism as a washing, baptism as a flood. Noah was saved by God's grace through this baptism, this, this flood, but he was shut in to the ark. He was kept safe. And so the blood of Christ keeps us safe. Maybe a little meditation upon what it means to be baptized at some point would be helpful in us thinking about how the flood is an antitype to our baptism. So, we have God-hating sin, we have eschatological judgment, and we have the righteous walking with God because of grace. Let's apply it to us. Christ is the one who shuts us up in the ark of the church. That's what he does. We are secure in the righteousness of Christ's work and placed within his body. That's where we're safe. Noah was safe from the flood by human intervention. Not that way, but by God's grace. It wasn't anything he did. It was a divine miracle. God shut him and his family into the ark. Now, no doubt what Noah built was seaworthy. It was a good boat. But for success, God must shut him in. The worst floods, the worst that the floods could offer the ark, made of gopher wood and pitch. So God interposed and secured them by his hand and kept them safe in the ark. As the flood furiously came against them, as it pounded the sides, so in the same way, Christ's blood protects us from the wrath of God. In the same manner, God shuts us up in the church of Christ. In his work, in his obedience, in his death, in his power, in his intercession, we're kept safe. That's where we're kept safe, there. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3.21, Noah's deliverance was like our baptism. The method of salvation that we receive is demonstrated in our baptism, in the waters that come over us, though we are protected by the work of Christ. So we say, we have to ask, are we like Noah? Are we safe in the ark? Does the world hate us? The world hated Noah. Peter even talks about that. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Jesus talks about that. Peter talks about that. In a world which hates God, Noah still preached the righteous things of God and told them the truth. Floods are coming, you're all going to die unless you repent. The kingdom is going to be destroyed. God's kingdom is going to be set up. Your kingdom is going to be wiped out. His kingdom is going to be set. Peter says only eight were saved. Noah was a preacher. Christ spoke of repentance and grace through Noah. That Noah preached in his day to these men. In that way, how are we, like Noah, faithful? No matter what the world throws at us, we must stand strong in faith to God. Imagine what Noah went through. 120 years it took him to build the ark. Not like two. I've been in this job for 20 years. You know, you hear people moan and groan. Think about no, 120 years with people telling him he's nuts. Not a drop of, not a drop of rain. Right? 
He's building it in the middle of on, on dry land. And the people, he's the talk of the town. He's the talk of the planet. This is a guy, you know, over in America or, you know, over in Europe. This is a guy. He's building an ark with, like, big trees in the middle of the land. Can you even believe that? He says that God is going to destroy the whole world. Trials and tribulations, hatred, envy, scorn, malice, all of that the world gives us because we believe God. And God tests us to see whether or not we will stand firm. Noah built an ark in the middle of the woods. For us, it would be the equivalent of building an aircraft carrier in the middle of Nebraska by hand. Standing strong, and, and by the way, Noah's ark was a little bit bigger than that. Noah did something that seemed crazy, but he was listening to what God told him. Standing strong is going the distance no matter what God asks of you. Jesus in the parable of the sowed seeds. Remember how that goes. Certain seeds fell in different places and some listened and received it rightly on the good ground and the rest didn't. Noah, Noah was a man of faith who listened to God and in the midst of the most unbelievable trial... I don't think there's anything worse. You're going to be the last one, Noah, you and your family. And I'm going to destroy everything else on the earth. And the only thing that's going to protect you is this ark that you're going to build. Everybody's going to hate you. Everybody's going to scoff against you, but do it anyway, because I'm telling you to do it. It's the truth. And Noah did it. What do we do? How do we act when we are scoffed against? When we stand, as God so desires us to stand, but the people of the world think we're crazy. Peter even tells us, you don't run away in dissipation with them. And they think you're nuts as a result. When the boss tells us to do something unethical, when friends want us to go to a bar or have some fun, quote, quote, when... People's girlfriends or boyfriends takes them to see movies that they shouldn't see. When the world prompts us to trust in ourselves instead of God, Noah trusted in God with great faith. People give an emphatic, yes, yes, we want to follow God, but you see by their lifestyle that they don't. And they become hypocrites before God or false Noahs in that way. When people do not do the things which Christians ought to do, which are basic and simple, reading the word, praying, attending church, tithing, the basics that even hypocrites can do, for them, when the real floodwaters come, they'll not be able to stand firm in their faith because it's a, it's a hypocritical faith. It's just a superficial lie that they live if they're simply professing something to look good in front of other people. On the way to church today, we came by a caravan of people leaving the Catholic Church. Why did they go? Why are they there? Because it makes them feel good for a little while. Maybe some people came and visited Noah. Noah, you need some help? Who knows? Maybe just for a little while. If we trust in God's plan, we are protected by God in our Christian walk, in our ark. 
If Christ is for us, as the scripture says, who could possibly be against us? With God as our guide and our shepherd, what possible misfortunes might come our way and what are we going to face that we can't overcome? Christians should have a very different view of life than the rest of the world because trials and temptations are to be considered by us joy, James tells us. Noah was building an ark in the middle of Nebraska. Is that joy? Sure. Nothing should befall us which may take us by surprise or that we would be unprepared for because we're understanding that the trials and tribulations that come test our faith and stretch us to the max even if floods come. Though God brings a flood, we're in the ark. We're shut in. Doesn't matter how bad something gets. Christ keeps us safe. It's really difficult not to imagine the people outside the ark once it began to rain. And rain a lot. And keep raining. And seeing the bubble of water burst that was protecting the earth miles above. Or hear the rumbling of earthquakes where the waters of the deep with such power came up out of the ground to flood the planet. I don't doubt that they ran to the ark. They were like foolish virgins. But they weren't let in. God shut the righteous into the ark and he shut the others out. Imagine those people who are outside of the cross of Christ in the same way. Eschatological judgment is going to come. Those outside are foolish virgins. They have no oil for their lamps. And those virgins knew about the one coming and were waiting. They just didn't have any oil. How does God protect us? Today, do you know that God still has us building arcs. Still. Noah made the ark that God wanted him to make. Not an ark that he would make, but one that God wanted him to make. Certain dimensions, certain way. And Noah did it. How often is it that God tells you to do something and you do it as you would want, not the way that God would want? Noah made an ark by faith, as Hebrews says. No other ark would do for the Christian than to live by faith in an ark that God would have for us. Even in the light of the scoffing of other men, Noah was faithful to do what God told him to do. And he was saved as a result. And God shut him in as a result. And the scriptures now eternally attest to Noah's righteousness and faithfulness. And we are to mimic that. Who knows what kind of job God will give us today in terms of what he wants us to do. In terms of certain things that he may call us to do. Providence often leads us in various directions. But, in the basics, in the things that he's revealed in his word, there they are, plain, plain as day. What will we do with them? Things that he told us that we should do. Study, and prayer, and church, and, and a good witness, and faithfulness. Everything that, everything that Noah did so that God would say, covenantally faithful... So he should say to us, covenantally faithful. Because in every single one of those things, those are arcs for us. Those are things God is telling us to do that we might follow. That we might do what he says. That we might obey his statutes and commandments and judgments and so forth. And, in light of knowing 
that there is an eschatological judgment coming, and it's going to be a big one, and the flood is not even going to compare to it. The ones who are in hell now, as a result of dying in the flood, are saying there's, there's something worse. A little water. Not, it's not, trust me, it's, it's worse now. And it'll be even worse when they get their new bodies, because right now they're just disembodied spirits in hell, burning. And since we know that God hates sin, how then do we react? That, it's pressing. It's a pressing question. In the midst of a perverse generation, Noah was faithful. In the midst of our perverse generation, how faithful are we? How faithful are we to do God's will and to follow God's will in all of these things and to be as faithful and true as Noah was? We have to, we have to brush up on our theology of walking with God and walk with Him in a right way. Even in the light, of other people scoffing at us, thinking it's crazy that we don't run off into the same wickedness that they do, pulling our sin as if, as if with a cart and rope, we should be faithful to do everything that God asks of us. Do we? Let's meditate on what God has done in this passage with Noah and how that will affect our lives as we look to Christ as we look to be shut up under his blood, that we might storm any waters that God brings our way and be faithful in everything. Let's pray. Mighty Lord and everlasting one, we thank you for your grace, without which Noah would not have survived. We thank you, O Lord, that you are the holy God and that you are one who judges sin and that you are one who is bringing eschatological judgment, end-time kind of judgment, one day. We pray, O oh Lord, in the midst of that time, until that time, if we are here until that day comes, or even if you tarry and we die, Lord, even in our life, we pray that you would allow us, O oh Lord, to be faithful as Noah was faithful, that regardless of how perverse this generation becomes, we will still build our arcs no matter who scoffs against us or who thinks we're strange. We ask, O oh God, that you would enable us by faith to trust in you, that we might be reminded that through the work of the Lord Jesus, we are shut in to your grace. We are in the midst of your hand, of which no one can pluck us out. And we thank you for that and ask that you would be with us throughout this week as we desire and attempt to live righteously before you, holy and without blemish. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.